Thing is a Cinema Diabolica special presentation. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. Okay, DZ, how would you feel about a movie that not many people know, but is a sequel to a movie that everyone knows, and one that's basically a John Waters-directed porn horror, but with no John Waters? You, you had me at uh, just mixing all that confusion together. And you had me the second you said porn. Private Parts and the Ninth Configuration, this week on Cinema Diabolica. Broadcasting from a project studio that's more project than studio. It's Cinema Diabolica's Spooktoberfest. Prepare to be bored and think, these guys should have quit years ago. Because here comes F-13 and DZ. <laughs> hey, hey, what's up, everybody? It's Cinema Diabolica time. It's your boy, F-13, the Sancho head honcho, Mr. Psycho 77, talking spicy and getting feisty, F-13z for sheezy, the noise bringer, the gunslinger, tan sabroso, que me llama monstruoso, delicioso, the Mexican murder gorilla, man so hot they call me the burner, bang, bang. And with me, of course, is my buddy DZ. Are you still rockabilly? Uh, that was never a thing that happened, but I will thank you to keep a civil tongue in your head, sir. <laughs> So what are we doing first? Uh, first, I want to talk about uh, private parts and uh, not the kind that I have in my swimsuit area and not the kind that uh, that Howard Stern has. Uh, this is a movie by uh, Paul Bartel. Yep. 1972. And we have covered one of his other films, Eating Raul. Eating Raul is one of my favorite uh, uh, cult films of all time. Um, it really ranks up there because it, it hit me at a time that I was really susceptible to the, oh, my God, what am I even watching uh, effect that a lot of those films get you. It's a pretty great film. And uh, wait, wait, when did you see it the first time? Eating Raul? Way too young. Way too young. <laughs> uh, yeah, same here. I think I was 12. Yeah, around, around <laughs> there. Around there. Uh, Paul that, Bartels, would, that would do it. Paul Bartels. This one her. would really do it too. By the way, private yes. parts. No, no, it would have done it ten times more than Eating Raul. <laughs> I would be a very different person if that was the movie I saw that day. Uh, um, and you know, it's interesting. Just the, the keep it vague and uh, you know, not spoil anything. It has a twist in it that precedes a movie that came out in the eighties mm. and that everybody's like, they still talk about it to today where it's like, Oh my God, it's super shocking, blah, blah, blah. And then there was also a repeat of that similar kind of twist in the nineties where I was like, Oh my God. And people are talking about it still in reference and blah, blah, blah. But this one, unfortunately doesn't get that praise. And no. I think it should because it's, uh, I liked it. I really liked this movie. Yeah. I, I felt like it, it's, uh, it doesn't get a lot of the recognition that it should be getting. Uh, Paul Bartel's director credits, uh, looks like the first couple in 1968 and 69 were shorts that are probably lost to the years. Who knows? Um, then in 72, well, still, we have on. private if parts. If Kenneth Anger can still have his obscure shorts well, out there, I'm sure we can find Bartel. I, I feel like there's a bigger cult of people around Kenneth Anger than there is around Paul Bartel, but who knows? Hey, you know what? Maybe this is a... Uh, well, I'm not going to give that up yet, but this is maybye a can Paul Bartel might be a candidate for uh, something that may be coming at a later date. This <laughs> must be so vague. <laughs> Vagary. But uh, yeah, after that, uh, Private Parts in 1972 as his first listed uh, directing job of a full-length feature film. And then right after Private Parts, a film you may have heard of called Death Race 2000. Yeah, Death Race 2000. That one I saw when I was really little. Apparently, Bartell has influenced my life more than I thought. Yeah, and then right after that, uh, in 1976, a little film called Cannonball with, with an exclamation point. 
You know what? I'm not sure if I've seen Cannonball. And the, oh, dude, it's so good. Yeah, I, I feel like that thing that I'm not going to reference, we might actually have to do. Uh, and after that, we've got Eating Raul in 1982. And then that's pretty much it as far as his uh, his director's credit go. After that, it's Not for Publication, Lust in the Dust, and The Long Shot, which I've never seen or even really heard much about. Uh, Lust in the Dust is fun. Okay. It's really weird, though. I, I mean, I would I would kind of expect that from Paul at this point. Uh, he yeah. directed two episodes of Amazing Stories in 86 yep. and 87. Uh, scenes yep. from the class struggle in Beverly Hills, which was oddly one of my mom's favorite movies. That I remembered hmm. seeing as a child, which is really weird to me. Uh, an episode of the comic strip presents, which was kind of odd. The Demonella episode, oddly. Okay. Uh, a film called Shelf Life in 1993. Uh, and then in 1996, of all things, he directed two episodes of Clueless. <laughs> okay. Did you watch that show? No, no, I did not. I mean, I, you know, I love the movie, but, you know, I'm just like, man, eh, never got around to watching the show. That's a really, that's a weird, like, kind of end cap. It, it is. It's a really weird yeah. progression and a weird end to a directorial career. Hmm. I'm not sure if I I'm not sure how, how I think, about, yeah. how you feel about that. But um, anyway, so getting back to private parts. Yes. What can you really say about it? Well, I can say the IMDb style synopsis says young Cheryl moves into her estranged Aunt Martha's rundown King Edward Hotel. One of its offbeat residents, disturbed photographer George, takes special interest in her. Cheryl begins suspecting that a resident was murdered. This is a really your typical really bad uh, IMDb yeah. synopsis because it really kind of cuts out a lot of the meat of uh, what you could say about this movie that would give you a better a better idea about what you're going to see if you were to watch it. Yeah, it's so vague as to be kind of a downer, really. Right, definitely. Private Parts is kind of a... I said earlier, it's for fans of John Waters' films. Uh, Private Parts is one of the raunchiest, filthiest, biggest middle fingers pointed straight at the conventional cinematic world that I've ever seen. It's amazing yeah. what he got away with and what they were able to get on the screen there. Um, it's a great mix of depravity, horror, I mean, flat out insanity. Uh, it's darkly comedic. It's bizarre, gory, uh, and it's almost incomprehensible without taking that David Lynchian jump into meaningless blatherskite, which I really appreciated when it, when a film and a director are able to kind of flirt with and dance on the edge of uh, incomprehensibility, but not fully go into like, oh, this is just fucking random bullshit. I really appreciate that. And your protagonist is completely despicable. Cheryl is one of my... Oh, yeah. I could not stand this character. She's an extremely she, selfish young girl who really only cares about herself and is, doesn't care about all the damage she leaves in her wake. So it you're, you're kind of watching as like, I'm uninvested, but that not in a bad way, because I've said that many times, but not in a bad way. You're kind of watching and enjoying what happens. Well, yeah, and it, you know, because really it's more about the characters around her, especially George and the Reverend. I, I think I have a feeling that there were some scenes that they cut out. He may have. I don't know if the actor was actually drunk because I've seen him in other things, <laughs> but um, I don't know if they could really wrangle him. But he's the weirdest fucking character. And similar to um, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, where there's the teacher in, in the leather daddy outfit, which, like, when I saw that when I was a kid, I was like, what? Hey, I do not understand what is going on. Hey, you understand movie. now, though, don't you? <laughs> oh, I know now. I totally get that movie. I even backed the uh, um, the Kickstarter for, you know, the documentary on it. But, um, yeah, it, when the priest shows up as a, uh, as a leather daddy, and it's a brief scene, and it's, like, non judgmental at all, and it's just like, what? 
See, I don't now, understand. I, I, I kind of had inklings at first when you see the priest and he is doing astrology. I was like, well, that's kind of a weird thing for a priest to be doing. Uh, <laughs> right. Also, why doesn't he live in, uh, what is it, the rectory or whatever, wherever those people are supposed to live? Like he's living yeah. in a hotel. And then I was like, I think there's something else going on here. And then it was just like the full blown grand bull moose of like, oh, okay. You, you okay, yeah, you are not this a priest. This is 1972 cosplay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's what I'm going to call fetishism from now on. 1972 <laughs> cosplay. Yes. Um, so uh, but this movie, in a, in a sense, it doesn't have too much in the way of narrative progression. It starts out with a, a sex scene and the manhandling of a peeping roommate. Uh, it establishes that there's two girls that ran away from Shitsville, USA, ran away to L.A. to meet some boy. Um, one of them kicks the other one out because she's a drag man and uh, she steals her money and runs off to meet her aunt who owns a hotel. And that's pretty much the rest of the film. There's mysteries in the hotel, depravity, uh, uh, perversion, stuff that happens there. Uh, murders, a lot of killing, voyeurism, lots of voyeurism, uh, revelations uh, and then an ending that I didn't quite I mean, here's the deal. I didn't understand why the ending ended the way it, like there literally was no reason it should have ended that way. It was kind of tacked on, but I appreciated it nonetheless. Yeah. Yeah, I, I we've we've had this, we've encountered this before where it's like why did they decide to throw that in there when right. like everything else that leads up to it is really really good. Um, well, no, it's not to say, I, I just, let me just interrupt you quick, not to say that it's bad. It isn't necessarily a bad ending, but it would have served the film better if they had been leading up to it the whole time instead yeah. of just tacking it there because it was a totally doable ending. They could have really stuck that ending, but they didn't do the work it took to get to it. Yeah, I think you're you're correct. It, it had I think there was a, a good opportunity, uh, maybe a couple scenes before leading up to it that would have explained it better. Um, and again, it, there's there are a few things in here that I'm like, OK, we might have some outtakes that we don't know about or, you know, they just kind of made do. I mean, it's, you know, it's pr probably a low budget film and Bartel was going with something that was just kind of deranged. And so he was probably trying to keep the actors um, a little off kilter, you know, just to keep it more authentic. Yeah. So it wouldn't surprise me at all that um, there was a better explanation in his head. It just didn't come out. Now, moving away from that for a moment, I have never seen waterbed dolls before. Oh, you know, neither have I. I'd heard that they existed, but I'd never seen. What folks, what DZ is talking about is in this film, there is a sex doll that is a basically a water, a woman shaped waterbed. It's filled with water. And the um, the the entire sequence uh, where you see, uh, basically, it's a cum scene, and right. I'm like, whoa, that that works in a really really disturbing way. Well, he's uh, um, George, the photographer. Um, he has, uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and uh, give this part away. But he has the well. It's the worth doll. seeing. It's so, worth seeing for sure. So if you if you hate spoilers, skip ahead uh, thirty or forty seconds here. But he injects the doll with uh, a syringe of his own blood. Uh, George is what you call a peakerist. He uh, is obsessed with peakerism. He likes he he gets off on insertion, you know, the insertion of something into something else. And a lot of times, peakerists are that way because they have uh, erectile dysfunction. They can't get it up, so they have a surrogate that they use to penetrate their partner slash victim slash what have you. George has another reason 
that he's a peakerist, but we won't get into that. Wait, hold on a second. You drop in some science. Did we switch chairs? <laughs> I know things. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I'm glad you brought that because that's uh, wow. That's really good. You know, and you saying that reminds me of the time that we covered uh, from beyond, and it was like there was these things that were inserted into the story that were sex based that you know have a scientific uh, foundation to them. Yeah, there's so much kink in this. It's like this is so Bartel. I mean, every yeah. time I see him and other things, I'm like, you know what? That guy's got to be. That guy's got to. Some closet at home, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. He's got a kinky streak a mile wide. No question in my mind. Him and, and Mary Warnov both are, are, yeah, they both get, like to get it a little kinky. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting, too, is he does show up from behind the tree in his little Hitchcock moment where it's like, did he just take a fresh shit? <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciated that as well. I, I heard I, I had read that he was in the film. And at first I, w I thought he was the priest until I took a closer look. And I was like, oh, no, that's that's just another bald, fat white guy. That's not necessarily Paul Bartel. <laughs> well, this is the 1970s. They all kind of look alike. Yeah, that is absolutely true, DZ. You hear that, folks? All bald, fat white men in the 70s looked alike. Send emails to DZ at cinemadiabolica.org slash co.uk question mark equals 14. Now then, uh, the character of uh, George Atwood was uh, performed by John Ventantonio. Vent Ventantonio, yeah. Uh, this was the only okay. film he was ever in. Uh, he was in th uh, four other uh, episodes of TV series called uh, Circle of Fear in 73, Hawkins in 73, uh, The Wide World of Mystery in 75, and Switch in 78. But that was it as, uh, as far as an actor. And he never he doesn't have any other credits. He, Which is uh, too bad. I actually it, really liked him. He had a great presence. It was a shame because, yeah, he really could have. He really played the shit out of a, a deranged, uh, a deranged killer. Like I would have loved to have seen him in a. I don't want to say a serious film, as if this wasn't a serious film, but something that isn't played so much for kitsch or camp. Oh, okay. So, yeah, um, I, I agree with that. Sorry, I just got a little distracted. That Reverend Moon was in an episode of Punky Brewster. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! <laughs> You uh, get away from my sweet little punky, you filthy bastard. Uh, now that's love. <laughs> it unfortunately is. Um, <laughs> private parts. I don't want to talk too much more about it because I really, really insist that you Legion out there get this film and watch it. It's available various ways, including some not so untoward ways. But yeah, watch this movie and then uh, hit us up and tell us what you thought. I was blown away. I enjoyed the shit out of this. I will be making a purchase if there's one to be made. I'll be watching it again. Um, this really added a lot to my life, I think. I think this is going to be one of my favorites going forward. Yeah, all of the above. Oh, and then the whole 70s, you know, look, which we both adore so much, and L.A. and a little bit of the, the hippieisms. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic watch, and it covers kink in, a, in, in an interesting way. People are like, kind of like, yeah, we're kind of chill because I think everybody's kinky. Ref in LA, so I'll say in a refreshing way. They, it's, yeah. it's really revolutionary what they've done 40 years ago. And it's totally worth uh, seeing. Um, so, yeah, get on it. I'm going to give uh, Private Parts a 10 out of 9 because I love it. <laughs> I'm going to give it three testicles. Ooh, a whole three? That's, mm -hmm. Folks, you have no idea. That is a high ranking in DZ World. Bo bonus ball. Bonus ball. And we'll be right back with Ninth and Fit with You're listening to Cinema Diabolica. 
number one with a bullet. Hey, hey. All right, listen. The Ninth Configuration is a film that I've heard tell of, and I've heard these stories before, but I never really stopped to think about the, the ramifications of, of, of what it is. This is an intense 1980 William Peter Blatty film. Yes, William Peter Blatty. You've heard that name because he was the writer of The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. And uh, while he didn't direct The Exorcist, uh, William Friedkin was actually uh, tapped to direct The Ninth Configuration with him. But when it became clear that he would have actually been a figurehead just for the credits, he stepped aside. And uh, William Peter Blatty directed it himself. And I'm stunned. Because, um, you know, you've seen other creators or writers step into the role of director and, oh, my God, the results have not been all that great. This is really an excellent film Um, and it's got a hell of a cast. Holy crap. Uh, You've got Stacey Keach, Scott Wilson, Jason Miller, Ed Flanders, George DiCenzo. Robert Loja. Robert Joseph. Loja. Oh, I love him in this, by the way. I, actually, I love everybody in this movie. There's also Joe Spinell, and we've covered him before. Recently. And he, yeah, and it's interesting, too, because um, he plays a character simply called Spinell, and that's because he begged his friend, uh, Blatty, to be in the film, but he wasn't written in. So pretty much every scene you see him in is ad-libbed. Right. He just kind of tacked it in there. Yeah, Tom Atkins is in this. Uh, William Luckin, Richard Lynch, and Richard Lynch—he's like the—he always looks the same. So, he, and it's weird because it pretty much for what thirty plus years. All, this is almost forty years old. Um, he looks like an old guy, no matter what <laughs> what time frame it is. <laughs> he's got eternal old face. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So let's not uh, belabor this any further. The IMDb style synopsis for Ninth Configuration is thus. A new commanding officer arrives at a remote castle serving as an insane asylum for mentally ill and AWOL U.S. soldiers where he attempts to rehabilitate them by allowing them to live ellipses. This film is not about anything that I just said. No, it really isn't. It's not about uh, it's not about uh, a mental illness. It's not about a uh, about fascism or the commentary on um, post-war, post-Vietnam America, which I'll get into in a second. And it, it had it does have some some interesting commentary there. But in my uh, in, in my uh, opinion here, the ninth configuration is a, a treatise on atheism, uh, faith and uh, lack thereof and things that shake your faith and things that can return your faith, uh, much in the same way that The Exorcist was actually kind of the same thing. And Blatty said that this was his intended sequel to The Exorcist um, as well. And right. um, he, oh, there's another um, book that he I don't think they've made into a movie yet called Legion. That was supposed to be the third part. He uh, he. He intended this to be the sequel towards The Exorcist. I mean, he never intended The Exorcist to have a sequel, but the studio was was hype on it. So they talked him into writing a sequel. They saw the sequel he was writing and they were like, no, no, this doesn't take full advantage of the uh, the hype around The Exorcist. So they made that awful sack of shit, uh, The Heretic. Um, this film is connected to The Exorcist. In the beginning of The Exorcist, in the scene where uh, Reagan's mom is having a dinner party. 
Uh, little Reagan comes downstairs while she's supposed to be in bed. And among other things, she points at a man who is an astronaut and tells him, you're going to fucking die up there. Uh, that man is Captain Cutshaw from this film. He apparently flipped out and uh, couldn't go on his uh, he couldn't go up into space and had a breakdown before the launch. And he's been here ever since. Yeah. And that role is played by Scott Wilson, a young Scott Wilson. Um. I, I was kind of blown away by that interesting little tidbit because I went into watching the film without that knowledge. Oh, yeah, I um, I had come across it while I was watching it now. Um, and it's not a bad, you know, it's not because of the film or anything, but I fell asleep at one point and I woke up to the Nazi <laughs> costume. Right. Seeing them like what? And I was just like, what the fuck happened? So, you know, obviously I had to restart it um, and watch it again. But. Wow, this is an emotional roller coaster movie. Right. Um, it's not perfect. There's, a, I have, a, you know, a few problems with the ending, but once you realize what is going on, and by the way, there's a certain point where they, where I'm like, oh, I think I've got a grasp on what this is, and then, it, right. you know, and you, and you know, that at some point, you know, if a, a character kind of says that, then it's like, oh, well, then they they're not going in that direction. And you know, then it kind of gets you all stirred up. This movie right. is definitely that. Um, Stacy Keach, he plays it like this flat affect and kind of subtle. Um, Stacy Keach know, is, uh, his character he, is a uh, director Kane. He is the new director of this military hospital for people with. And so before I go into that, I'll say here uh, after the Vietnam war, uh, soldiers came back with PTSD, but we didn't know what PTSD was yet. So, At that time, I believe it was called shell shock. Right. They called it shell shock. Soldiers came home shell shocked. Uh, the mental effect that war has on people hadn't really been fully examined and like, understood and accepted yet. So there was uh, uh, just kind of a thing made up called shell shock. And there was a lot of conversation in the, in the United States about whether or not they were faking. Yeah, and you, that also came up um, with in Mash with the character of Klinger. You know whether or right. not he was really mad. And, but you know what? The thing is, you <clears throat> here's the kind of like the cognitive problem with that. Even if they're mad and they're they're even if they're not mad, and they're faking it to try to get out of doing something. You know, like conscientious objector, whatever for whatever reason. The thing is, it doesn't matter. They still are unwilling to do what you're trying to command them to do. So there's right. still a liability regardless of whether or not it's fake. Right. There needed to be a better way for people to opt out rather than having to pretend that they're insane. Yeah. Um, you because know, that can happen. I mean, you know, when shit gets oh, real, sure. people. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the Exorcist, the Ninth Configuration and Exorcist 3, that makes up, the, in my opinion, the true Exorcist trilogy. All three movies and uh, the source materials, their various books and what have you, deal with characters grappling with the existence of God, the mysteries of faith, and the nature of evil. This, to me, is the true uh, uh, through line that the films uh, share. They come from different places and end up in different places and deal with different issues and, and, and characters and things. But in, in a sense, they all have that same uh, that same that same through line of God versus atheist kind of thing. This one handles it. There's some really wonderful imagery where, um, 
you know, it questions that too, you know, and they have these nice philosophical conversations, which you don't right. often see in a lot of films. I mean, you'll, you'll see it um, in sci-fi books and things like that. Like I've been recently reading Anathem by Neil Stevenson, which is really just a bunch of small dialogues that he's kind of having internally about the nature of reality. Right. But um, yeah, this, this one takes it in a direction I wasn't expecting. And especially since you know, it was a 1980 film, um, and it precedes another film as well that came out in the you know, last like eight years that uh, goes over the idea of mental illness and, you know, the surroundings. It's like, are you insane because of, you know, of, of being around other people who are insane? How does that you know develop? And there is right. a certain point where I'm like. I don't know if, you know, if we're, what we're seeing is, you know, is the reality, you know, how it's like mm. the entire, like the plot structure seemed to kind of convey the idea of it not being reliable at all either. Right. The unreliable narrator. Right. But it's, but it's more than just an unreliable narrator. It's like, you know, they do certain point, which was, it's slightly heavy handed, but then it explains a couple of scenes where you see a couple of characters get emotional right. and it's like, Oh, okay. So that gave a deeper meaning. So it's like, watchable in that sense i can go oh, okay so there's these were been pieces here that were super subtle but they, they kind of clicked in your head sure yeah um and this is also you know the thing too is it's not just a just faith and atheism and god and, and things like that too but ultimately it's about love you know and, and that connection with other human beings mm. uh you know, when people have a mental disorder in a way, they're, they're, you know, many ways they're disconnected. Right. You know, they don't have, you know, other people that they can relate to in that same way. And, uh, and you know, people try to cure them, but in some time, in some cases they can get lost in that, you know, in trying to cure. And I'm, I'm getting, uh, you know, I'm kind of meandering here. Right. Um, and Just like kind the, of, yeah. It, yeah, the tricky movie where it's trying to you know who is getting healed here you know right. who's ultimately getting the benefit and it really is about loving other people yeah you know and there's you're, that part too you're meandering the same way the film kind of meanders a bit in the middle it kind of it has does. to make a progression from kind of broad-based comedy into kind of uh overbearing shouty method actor type stuff uh but Overall, the film is basically about Captain Cutshaw and uh, Killer Kane. Um, Captain Cutshaw, the disgraced astronaut, um, is having these like cr this crisis of faith and screaming about how God is dead and uh, the existence of evil is proof of that. And uh, uh, Stacy Keach's character is uh, countering that with uh, tr uh, you know discussion about how. Well, if the existence of evil is proof that God's dead, why isn't the existence of love proof of his existence? <clears throat> they try to demonstrate that through uh, through certain conflicts later right. on, which in my book was a bit heavy handed. But, you know, it, it we, we knew where bit, it was leading. Right. No, it seemed a bit kind of walking it out for us. But uh, I mean, I still kind of appreciated it, even if I felt that it was a little unnecessary. Um, and it eventually it 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 it, it the pinnacle is uh, a tearful revelation by Cutshaw, wherein he reveals that the real reason that he wasn't able to uh, go on the launch and um, had his little meltdown, uh, because in that moment, uh, right before launch, confronted with his own atheism, he's kind of forced to the idea that there is nothing out there. 
Yeah, it's it's sort of the, um, you know, just how big is the world? Can your mind kind of absorb it? He also was afraid of dying alone. Right. You know, and that that's a common thing, especially amongst military people. Yeah, what, what I'll say is, uh, I'm sorry, what was I just saying? Oh, never mind. <laughs> At any rate, um, I, uh, I'm really, really impressed by this movie, and I'm going to have to watch it a few more times to really kind of grok everything. I don't know if I, I took it all in on the first viewing. Yeah, um, I, <laughs> I can agree with that. It's uh, I had to kind of rewind a few spots here and there because it was like, are we really getting you know what we think we're getting out of this? It's there's some levels to this, right? Uh, looks well, like it, uh, William Peter Blatty only directed this, The Exorcist Three, and Legion, all in oh wait, nineteen eighty was the the ninth configuration, and then Exorcist Three and Legion are in nineteen ninety. I'm assuming Legion is the uncut quote unquote version of Exorcist Three. I guess I thought. Yeah, that's huh. what it is. No, it's it's not. And it's not really the I remember this, too. Uh, yeah, they attempted to release a director's cut, but they're the the footage is gone. It was completely lost to time. So they gathered up as much as they could, but they weren't able to really put together the the movie the way it was supposed to be. Well, The Exorcist 3 is also really good film, too. It's good, but it isn't his vision. I read a lot about that. It's not what yeah. he had intended. The studio cut it up and changed the. Uh, the original ending for Exorcist 3 was uh, after, um, uh, what is his name? Uh, the priest. Uh, Scott, George C. Scott? Yes, as when, uh, the young priest, the one that's possessed. Oh, he's in this movie. Oh, who was that? Well, it doesn't matter. We uh, know Jason, who we're talking Jason about. Jason Miller, I think. Anyway, yeah. go on. He, uh, he would just, because he was possessed by the spirit of the, you know, the serial killer. I don't, not trying he's to ruin it, but, but he drops dead for no reason in the original, uh, in the original film. And it was because his father had died somewhere else in, in America and he was only, you know, doing this just to disgrace him more and more. So when he died, he had no reason to continue. And the studio was like, absolutely not. Reshoot this ending or we'll do it for you. And so he, the film that's, the film's ending that it has was at the demand of the studio. Interesting, because they would have had to have restructured the entire movie if that was the point, because I didn't get that from the movie at all. Right. Huh. Yeah. Anyway, so, wow, this was this is probably one of the more intense films we've ever covered because it's philosophical, psychological. Right. And, you know, it has, um, you know, it dips into faith, you know, pretty deeply. Well, that's the thing is that The Exorcist, it's very easy to either ignore or choose to ignore or just never even get the whole underlying uh, current of uh, of shaken faith and uh, uh, faith in God and that kind of thing. It's really easy to not get any of that. This film is impossible to ignore because it, it makes up the crux of the movie. Especially the moon landing sequence. Oh, right. Yeah, I would agree with that. Man, oh, my God. <laughs> the music in that part was really good, too. Um. Let's see here. Ninth Configuration, 1980. Hmm. Exactly 10 years before Exorcist 3 in 1990. Interesting. <laughs> um, what are you going to read into that? Are you going to look up numerology? Uh -huh. I'm going to say that they definitely did it. Well, the moon was at its height of complexity and... Oh, I don't know. Anyway, uh, yeah, the Ninth Configuration. Um, I, I don't even know if I can rate it. Yeah. It, it kind of exists <laughs> outside of like... It, it would almost feel petty to try and rate it. You know what I mean? It's it's like it's like rating a conversation that a loved one had with you. A thesis movie. How do we rate right. a thesis movie? It, it exists as a great work of art um, and something that any 
any self-respecting student of film should definitely watch and discuss at length. And uh, if you know, if anybody knows a little bit more about theology, <clears throat> any insight would be uh, would be appreciated. Greatly appreciated. There's a few of you out there because I am a dumb dumb and don't know things. So please let us know if you know things. Well, didn't you clearly understand what this symbol meant? I understand symbols on a drum set. Those are the only symbols that I understand. Um, but yeah, so that was uh, that was uh, ninth configuration. Um, that was the. Sixth and seventh, I believe, uh, film in the top 15. And uh, next week, we're going to be covering a few more from that next five. I'm going to keep these a secret as well, just to make sure that you're getting excited for every uh, episode drop. And I'll say that uh, I'm really enjoying doing the show again. Uh, I still refuse to do any promotion or anything for it because uh, that's how uh, we ruined things last time. Uh, I'm trying not to burn out, so we're just going to enjoy what it is. So if you like the show and you want it to uh, grow and get uh, in front of more people's ears, then, uh, yeah, feel free to share uh, share posts on social media and uh, show it to your friends. Ooh, make some postcards and mail them out to random strangers. I can't get behind that, but I'm also not going to tell you not to do it. This has been Cinema Diabolica. I am F13. That is DZ. See ya! Bye! Black, 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 black